Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I will be your solo host for this episode. Uh, unfortunately, no Lee back joining us for this uh, wild romp into the early life of a politician. And instead, it's just me flying solo once again. Uh, Lee will be back again, though, I believe, uh, next episode, though. Uh, so... That'll be fun and exciting. But in the meantime, <laughs> that sounded so patronizing. That'll be fun and exciting. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, before we get into this week's episode, as usual, I just want to highlight some of the cool, fun, interesting, um, non-criterion-related films that I've been checking out lately. Um, I've gone, actually, and checked out... It, we're kind of hitting that point of the year where stuff's kind of starting to really consistently keep coming out. I mean, you know, at the beginning of the year, January, February, it's kind of the dribs and the drabs and kind of some of the late Oscar plays and things like that. And now we're kind of hitting into that phase of like that consistent kind of, oh, cool, I'll go to the movies every week just because there's something on. I mean, you know, you've got things like, you know, John Wick 4, Air, you know, there's always something on. And case in point of that was uh, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I mean, full confession, I am a fucking nerd who has played Dungeons and Dragons. And as such, uh, it was really fun picking up like a couple of little nods and Easter eggs and things. But it really did just remind me of like those kind of classic 80s and 90s like blockbusters that don't take themselves too seriously. They know exactly what they are. And they're having fun, but not in that kind of shitty smug way a lot of the Marvel and kind of modern blockbusters do, where it's just like they make a joke and then almost kind of like sarcastically look in the camera like, you're right? Like, no, like not none of that kind of smugness. It's more that kind of just genuinely fun and enjoying what type of movie it is. I mean, it's not anything revolutionary or amazing. It's just nice to see that kind of quality blockbuster back again. And who doesn't love fucking Hugh Grant just chewing up the scenery any chance he can get? Uh, another one I'll just quickly shout out. I won't say much about it, um, just because, I mean, to be honest, there's not a whole lot to say about it. But uh, Tetris, uh, the John S. Baird film that's over on um, Apple, that that was super fun. I mean, I'm in the bad. I, I like Taron Egerton. I think he's super charming. But this was a great, if you don't know the story, about uh, sort of the deal that was made kind of to get... Tetris packaged with the Game Boy and sort of eventually get that game out from behind the Soviet bloc and kind of in the uh, into the Western culture, I guess. Um, really kind of fun. Like, you hear this, you know, the title Tetris and it's about the video game. You don't exactly expect it to be like a Cold War thriller. <laughs> um, so if you're up for that kind of movie, it's really fun. Um, similarly, one that's like kind of just okay. Um, Evil Dead Rise was fine. Um... I mean, I say this as I'm recording in my study and I have an original Evil Dead 2 poster framed on my wall. That is a kind of indicator of how much I love the Evil Dead films. Um, it's solid. It, it is fun and entertaining. It has some really great little set pieces. But it's it's very much following in the Fede Alvarez 2013 uh, Evil Dead footsteps in that it's a true horror film. And there's very little in the way of kind of light or comedic touches that Sam Raimi brings with his films or with the television series Ash vs. Evil Dead um, but I mean obviously if you're a horror fan there's some great stuff in there and it's definitely worth seeing 
But I want to point out, like, uh, on Letterboxd, I've been doing my kind of, you know, as I go through rating everything throughout the year, and I've finally, finally, finally have hit the point of the year where I have my first four-star movie. Or the first film that I rated four stars because I dug it so much. And uh, my first four and a half. So I just want to quickly talk about those. Um, and then we'll, I promise we'll get on to this week's actual film. If you can't tell, I'm stalling for time because I'm by myself. And I don't really want to talk about young Mr. Lincoln. But anyway, uh, <laughs> um, the first one, I believe it's available on Disney Plus to watch if you're, if you're looking to track it down. But it's called Rye Lane. Um, and it's directed by uh, Rain Allen Miller, and this is a, a charming as fuck movie. I I really really had a blast with this one. Um, I mean, it's it's the story of it is two people who are kind of at a crossroads of their lives, a, a man and a woman who meet both having come out of relationships and kind of spend the day together, kind of helping each other through that process. I mean, that's the real basic logline for it. But it is fun, it is charming, the performances are incredibly sincere and engaging, um, and the film has such a unique visual style. Um, it's incredibly striking to look at. The way that they're able to kind of construct their shots and get it across, it really is one of those films where you're like, oh, this is a young filmmaker, a new voice, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to keep an eye out for them. I mean, again, it's nothing um, truly amazing or breath, or, you know... You original like uh, I mean look it's you have to kind of be in the mood for this type of film and it the day I watched it I was just in the mood for a great fun romantic comedy and this just ticked all the boxes for me and I had a great time with it so Rye Lane I highly recommend if you're looking for something kind of nice and easy and unique to check out um, so that's, that's right up there for the year for me so far but I did the other day, uh, um, at the time of me recording this, get to go... I, I went and saw Ari Aster's Bo is Afraid. This movie fucking rules. Um, I, I'm, if you're listening to this, I'm sure you're very aware of the kind of divisive discussion that's happening on the internet about this film. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people who are not liking it, and a lot of people that are. I, I fall firmly, firmly in the camp of people who loved this movie. I I saw it in a packed cinema, um, and by packed, I mean there was 50 to 60 people in there on, on an opening night, so like solid for, you know, an 8pm session on a Thursday for a three-hour long film. Um, and for the first half hour, um, I I felt like I was... Max Cady, uh, Robert De Niro in Cape Fear, just up the back, cackling with laughter. I thought it was fucking hilarious and kind of then became self-conscious because I'm the only one in the cinema laughing and, and amongst all these people. No one else really seemed to be on its wavelength. And so I was started to try and kind of curb myself because <laughs> I didn't want to ruin the experience for other people. I hate that. You know, that kind of person up the back who's ruining it for others just who aren't, you know, laughing too loud or whatever. So I'm like, control myself and just, I, I stuck with the film, loved it every second it went on. Um, and at the end of the film, the for those of you that have seen it, it ends on a very distinct shot that you just kind of sit in for a very long time. And um, there's a group of people in the cinema stood up and yelled, uh, I just wasted three hours of my fucking life, and I have no idea what the fuck that was about. <laughs> 
right? So I, I suggest that those guys maybe were not the target audience for this film, or, you know, maybe they need to examine their relationships with their mothers. I don't know, get in touch with some personal stuff, maybe some therapy. I don't, who's to say? Who's to say? But I thought this film was a fucking masterpiece. Um, I In the rankings of Ari Aster films for me, uh, I would put it probably in the middle. Um, I still kind of, I think Hereditary just works completely for me as a as a great first film and so i put probably but i would happily put this above midsummer i i loved this film so much so that i think i'm going to go back and watch it in cinemas again this weekend um just get another dose of those brown recluse spiders and their hysteria um <laughs> plus i just want to see how another audience reacts to the film um just if, if it's that same kind of scenario, I guess, um, of people just hating it, walking out, not getting it. But um, I, I'm truly fascinated to kind of see what what you listeners and what friends and stuff think about this film. So if you've, if you've seen it and have some opinions, please uh, do let me know. Because um, I, I, like I said, I, I loved it. And I'm, yeah, very interested in kind of discussing and talking about this one with people. Um but on that note, I guess we should move on to our actual film this week. John Ford's 1939 film, Young Mr. Lincoln. Few American historical figures are as revered as Abraham Lincoln, and few director-star collaborations embodied classic Hollywood cinema as beautifully as, as the one between John Ford and Henry Fonda. This film, their first together, was Ford's equally poetic and significant follow-up to his groundbreaking Western stagecoach, and in it, Fonda gives one of the finest performances of his career. As a young president-to-be, a novice lawyer struggling with an incendiary murder case, photographed in gorgeous black and white by Ford's frequent collaborator, Bert Glennon, young Mr. Lincoln is a compassionate and assured work and an indelible piece of Americana. All right, young Mr. Lincoln... Um, I'm not going to lie to you, this is one, um, I believe this kind of came out, like, right around my kind of peak period of really getting into Criterion, um, the original DVD, like, this was back when I was working at a, um, a video store that imported, uh, DVDs and Blu-rays for sale, um, you know, American ones, we had a Criterion section, and this is one that was kind of always I knew about, and that kind of classic cover art of Henry Fonda standing there looking uh, into the into the river and things and kind of very contemplative and I'm not gonna lie this is one that I've kind of not dreaded but I'll, I'll say not look forward to checking out um mainly I guess because I mean Henry Fonda he's one of those actors where I I, I enjoy him every time I see him but at the same time I have this weird thing in my brain where Whenever I see him, I feel like it's going to be a chore to watch him. It's a really weird, inexplicable thing because he's fucking amazing and he's always good. And I don't know why. I guess it's maybe connecting it with like the Grapes of Wrath and just kind of the kind of bleakness of the Steinbeck there. That kind of carries over into kind of Fonda himself for me, I guess, maybe. I, I don't know who's to say. But it, it truly, I think, is because of the title Young Mr. Lincoln and that cover art, and just assuming it is going to be a dry, dull biopic. I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of biopics to begin with. Um, 
And I mean, honestly, my initial thoughts when I sat down to watch this film, I mean, to quote uh, John Ford himself, I thought it was going to be boring as shit. So, um, okay, that's that's the other thing we need to point out. Obviously, I've just, for those that know, that is a sound drop from uh, David Lynch playing John Ford at the end of The Fablemans. I mean, spoilers, I get. I'm sorry for the spoiler if you haven't seen it, but fucking it's the it's been out for ages go see the fablemans it's amazing um but it's it, that was the other thing that i could not get out of my head the entire time watching this film and it it wasn't a detriment either the the whole discussion on the horizon line now remember this when the horizon's at the bottom it's interesting when the horizon's at the top it's interesting when the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. And that, that kind of made watching this film really interesting to kind of track after getting that kind of Rosetta Stone piece of information. I mean, albeit from a fictionalized version of John Ford, um, but by all accounts, it truly happened the Spielberg medium, yada, yada. We're not talking about the favorites. Um, but having that kind of Rosetta Stone information about the horizon line made it kind of really fun to dive into a John Ford film and kind of look for that and kind of look and examine the way that he's framing and setting up his shots. And it made this a way more enjoyable film to watch. And you kind of realize where so many modern masters, you know, your Spielbergs, your Scorseses and things, got their visual language and their understanding of the visual medium from. And it's totally John Ford. I mean, that being said, though, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is the most dynamic of John Ford's films. Um, it, I mean, obviously holds no candle to something like, you know, Stagecoach or The Searchers or even The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which I think it's just on my mind because I watched it recently. Um, but I think that's obviously, a, I think that's purposeful for Ford in that he's obviously tackling the story and his character in the center of this film, Abraham Lincoln, is is all the pomp and circumstance he needs. And so I think Ford very cleverly kind of takes a reserved stance in his filmmaking while being obviously very kind of economic and um, artistic in the way that he's shooting it. And, you know, by that, I mean never creating a dull frame. He is kind of at the same time taking a back, kind of, you know, taking his flair and putting it, making it a little bit more subdued so that he can allow Lincoln himself as the man the myth the legend kind of stand out and kind of be the focal point of the film it's less a a john ford film than it is a lincoln film and i think ford knows that when he was going in making it he knows i can't overpower this figure it's fucking lincoln like there's a giant you know 30 foot stone version of him he's one of the great americans he's an icon he's like i'm in australia i know who the fuck abraham everyone knows abraham lincoln so it he knows he can't kind of he's going to be overpowered overshadowed by the character you know the man himself in the film so very cleverly just lets that man be the power of the film instead of his visuals and his storytelling and at the same time just serviceably presenting that story and this is where it kind of got interesting for me because as i said i thought this was just going to be a boring as shit kind of standard biopic of you know this is abraham lincoln he was born in a log cabin as we all know like you know that all of that you know the standard like a wikipedia entry filmed um 
But instead, it's it's kind of cleverly doing what I think the Spielberg Lincoln film. I know I'm going to end up doing a lot of comparing uh, of John Ford and Spielberg and whatnot, and their two Lincoln films. But <laughs> fucking sue me, whatever. Um, it's it it very clever. What those two films, Young Mr. Lincoln and Lincoln, end up doing that is so clever is they're not trying to present an entire life story of Abraham Lincoln. Instead, they're they're trying they. They're pinpointing in, they're honing in on one specific time period in this man's life and using that and what happens in that distinct moment in time, uh, whether it be uh, the passing of an amendment or the this small murder trial um, in the case of this film. It's, it's using these small moments in the man's life to kind of shine a light on the looming presence and the overall figure that he was and what he meant to people. And it's a really clever way because if you're going to try and attempt to make a film about Abraham Lincoln, as I've said, you, you're going to be like John Ford. You're going to get overshadowed by the colossal myth and weight that this man carried. Um, I've got, as, as I have been doing when I've been doing these solo ones, I've been going through the, the essays that come with the Criterion editions, and in the essay, uh, Young Mr. Lincoln, Hero and Waiting by Jeffrey O'Brien, he just, there's an offhand comment that I think he makes that is, like, truly interesting. When Lincoln walks into history, he walks, in a sense, out of the world of John Ford's cinema. And, and what I read that as is, the way that we view and understand Lincoln now, you know, we're hundred and God, yeah, what is it? 150 years or whatever post his death, or 130 years post his death or whatever year. The time of this of young Mr. Lincoln being shot was 76, 74 years after he was assassinated. Um, what I read that comment as, it's basically how we've interpreted Lincoln, the kind of the man, the myth, the legend. I'm going to keep saying that just because it's fun to say, um, is that he, he looms so large across history, across mythology, uh, across, you know, that, that we view him in our minds and in our culture as if he is a figure that has stepped down off the movie screen. He is a larger-than-life man. It feels like he is just walking off out, essentially, as O'Brien said, off of a John Ford screen and into our kind of our lives and our consciousness. And so if you're going to try and encapsulate that kind of grandeur into an entire life story, you're fucked. There's, there's, no, there's no way that you could kind of concisely do that. And so what, you know, as I said, the Spielberg film and what Ford very cleverly does here is to pinpoint and choose the specific moment. And in that moment, we're going to encapsulate everything that everyone knows and understands about Lincoln. And what's great about both of these two films is obviously young Mr. Lincoln is him as the naive young lawyer uh, who's just made his first bid to become a, I believe it's a congressman. Um, in the beginning of his political career and the beginning of kind of everyone understanding and getting to know Abraham Lincoln, the man, the politician. And then with Spielberg's film, we have the kind of last great uh, political act that he does. And the film kind of obviously ends with the assassination and things. And I mean, just to also shine a light back on O'Brien's essay, he himself, like in that, he actually even says, the myth of the great man is subverted by presenting a hero who has not yet become himself, uh, who is all the more admirable for still being in the state of pure potentiality. 
The film radiates a youthful joy while at the same time insistently implying that the hero's destiny, the moment when the weight of, the, of history becomes unavoidable, will necessarily mean the loss of all joy. And I mean, we do get glimpses of that within the film. I mean, obviously, the court case that um, ends up being kind of the back half of this of uh, young Mr. Lincoln, you do get these wonderful little moments, and in particular, the final shots of the film, it's it's fond of presenting a contemplative and almost sad Lincoln, where he kind of understands the, the kind of power that he wields as an orator and as a politician and as a lawyer, that he he can use this for good and kind of help lead the people, which is, you know, what he's, we're witnessing in this film, him beginning to start to do and he understands the toll and the weight that comes along with that. It's it's truly fascinating. But at the same time, is it wholly enjoyable as a film? I mean, as I said, I went into this thing with the lowest of possible expectations. As I said, I, I was just not looking forward to watching this film. Although I put it on this morning, sat down to watch, and was pleasantly surprised. And I, I don't... I mean, a large portion of that has to be the framing device of the film, it not being a the life story, as I've said, and just kind of that focusing on the in on this one brief period of time. But at the same time, I thought it was interesting that the first chunk of the film is kind of dull and boring. <laughs> I mean, and I don't know why, but it kind of worked for me. I mean, we open up in 1832, and it's it's in New Salem, and you have the whole opening of uh, Abraham Lincoln. He's working at a store, and he gets a, a bunch of old books, including a law book. And then you have the scene of him sitting there, like, gleefully, you know, head against a tree, reading the law. And then, unfortunately, his um, his uh, ill-fated lover, um, Ill lover <laughs> the, his love, uh, Anne Rutledge, dies. So you have him, obviously, having the, you know, the flowers at the grave scene. But then that's kind of really only the first 10 minutes, that kind of cheesy setup for what, what I was expecting the whole film to be. But then he arrives in Springfield, Illinois, where he immediately, with kind of almost in a montage sense, he set up his law firm. And then it's kind of off to the races of just meeting the kind of environment in the world that this film inhabits of Springfield, Illinois, where, and it's gratefully, it's, it's done in this wonderful scene where it's like the annual town kind of parade and festival and things. And the way that he incorporates Lincoln into this is fucking hilarious. The, the Lincoln of the first half of this film, while yes, as you would imagine by the title, he is young. He is also a masterful judge of pie-eating contest, having fucking peach and apple pie both hand just chuffing it into his face. He is an expert at splitting logs. Uh, <laughs> he is also a uh, rambunctious tug-of-war champion. Uh, in an interesting, like, little montage. Actually, if, the more you kind of think about that, the more it's interesting and you can read into... I mean, O'Brien reads deeply into it in uh, in the essay to an extent that I don't necessarily agree with. Sort of saying that he, him... Because if, if you haven't watched the film, Lincoln ends up tying the... He's the kind of anchor on the tug of war. And he ties it to a, a uh, wagon and slaps a mule so it kind of runs and pulls the other team in. So he cheated, essentially. Abraham Lincoln is a big fat cheater. That's what John Ford is saying in this film. No. <laughs> um, but O'Brien in the essay establishes, like, you know, makes the case for... That's him understanding that he has bigger fish to fry and doesn't have time for frivolous... It's like, oh, that's a bit much. The way that I view that is we're establishing this man as someone who is smarter, who views himself as a smarter and a more 
kind of has more ingenuity about how to solve a situation and which is obviously what ends up happening later in the film and it's it's this nice little foreshadowing of uh and something that kind of rubs me the wrong way later in the film which i'll get to but yeah it's this nice little nod to this man abraham lincoln like he is smart he does have the ingenuity and he has the work around to try and get what he wants out of a situation um and it's then we're kind of off to the races with later that night uh two uh young men matt and adam clay uh end up getting into a brawl with a drunken uh man who has been kind of harassing them throughout the day um being really creepy with their mother uh scrub white he's killed uh they he's he's stabbed in a brawl where it's unsure whether or not he pulled a gun on the young men but anyway, the, all the townsfolk drunk and riled up post this huge day festival of, you know, they've been day drinking. They're all day drunk. Uh, immediately try to lynch the two young men, to which Lincoln steps in uh, very valiantly, uh, kind of calming down the mob in this beautiful scene that kind of very much presents the Abraham Lincoln that we all know from history books, the, 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 the brilliant orator and kind of storyteller. And safe to say, it's not going to be his last monologue in the film either. But it's at this point we, you know, it's obvious Lincoln is going to be the the defense lawyer for these two two young men. And then the film shifts gears into what I was not expecting, which is a courtroom drama essentially of of these two young men who are on trial, uh, set to be um, executed and hung if uh, found guilty. And it's one where the the judge and the local prosecutor every and the whole town is just like yeah we're just doing this for the sake of you know we have to but we're all gonna we all know these kids are guilty we're all gonna hang them we're gonna have a great time doing it and instead lincoln throughout the um throughout this ends up kind of essentially proving their innocence by the end but does it in a way that is kind of cool calm calculated and in that same sense as with that tug of war match that way of kind of finding a workaround or kind of finding the loophole that allows him to kind of flex his muscle of intelligence while also overcoming what seems to be an insurmountable task and prevailing in victory. Um, Which is, and I get, I said I had a little bit of a slight problem. It's my one issue with, with the Henry Fonda portrayal in this film and the way that, I guess it's Lamar Trotty's script as well that kind of presents Lincoln in this way. I just get the sense that he is a guy in this film that not only thinks but knows he's smarter than everyone he's surrounded with, and in that comes off smug to me. I, I don't know if that's just me being weird, but, I mean, it starts with that tug-of-war match, which, I know, as I've said, is in there for a great kind of visual storytelling reason. But all throughout the trial, the kind of casual laziness with which Fonda plays Lincoln, while it's insanely captivating to watch, I couldn't help but get the sense that he he knows he's smarter than everyone and he isn't going to bother showing even like, you know, the modicum of respect or understanding for these people. He is just using them for a kind of means to an end to kind of get what he wants out of the trial or get where he wants to be in his political career. And I mean, the only kind of part that kind of counters to that is the interactions with Mary Todd, which when again, when she was introduced, I, I couldn't have rolled my eyes harder into the back of my head. Um, the, it's the very stereotypical, like Abraham Lincoln meet Mary Todd. And you're just like, Oh fuck. All right. 
But again, it is used as a really interesting way to show kind of counter to that smugness and that kind of arrogance, that chip on the shoulder. It kind of helps contextualize it to some degree. Um, by Lincoln standing up to the lynching mob and agreeing and being the the two young um, Adam and Matt's lawyers, um, Mary Todd is kind of very impressed by this, and so she invites Lincoln to a soiree that her and her sister are throwing, and it, it's kind of seeing this kind of big, bold, brash Lincoln that we've just seen, you know, giving this beautiful monologue that stops a, a, a riled up mob from lynching people. We see him in a social setting now. And he's quiet and he's awkward. And we understand where this kind of defense mechanism of that kind of smugness and that that kind of sense of entitlement, not sense of entitlement, I mean, what am I trying to say? That that idea that he he's smarter and better than everyone, it comes from an insecurity. We see him in this in this dancing scene, standing off on the sideline. He doesn't want to get involved, and especially when he sees uh, Stephen Douglas, who's going to be you know his his essential rival both politically and in the law uh, in the courtroom and things. Not this case, but just in future ones, sees how kind of suave and smooth he is on the dance floor and speaking with the women. You're like, oh, I understand where this kind of this this air about Lincoln comes from. It's, he's a socially awkward man. I mean, obviously he's a widower at this point as well, but him trying to dance with Mary Todd and how awkward and un, un, unsure of himself it, he is in this little scene, it kind of does help to contextualize it all. And I guess I, I'll be a little bit more, have to be a little bit more forgiving on my take on it than I initially was. But, I mean, as I've said, the, the film is primarily following... The, the Mary Todd stuff kind of falls to the wayside post the soiree. She's kind of always there in the courtroom, sitting in the front row, supporting him and listening and stuff. But it truly is just about this, this one court case, trying to save these two boys. And, I mean, surprise, surprise, he does. Uh, it's loosely based, I believe, off of an actual, um, an actual court case that Lincoln had won. Uh, here we go. The film is the ba- The film has its basis in a murder case against William Duff Armstrong, uh, which took place in 1858. Uh, it's referred to as the Almanac Trial on Armstrong's grave, and Lincoln proved the witness against the accused was lying about being able to see the light of the moon using an almanac, uh, which is basically the exact same way that Lincoln proves the innocence of the two young men uh, in this film and the guilt of a man who has the best name, uh, Joe Palmer Cass, or sometimes goes by Jack or Jackass. Uh, brilliant. Wonderful. Again, that playful kind of smug uh, Lincoln performance that Fonda brings, that's that's the moments, like kind of the, the discovery of that name and things. You're like, you're, you're, you're smug, but God, you're charming, <laughs> which I guess is what you kind of want out of Lincoln. <laughs> but... I mean that. I mean, on that note, Fonda, as I'd said earlier, it's it's one where I don't know why I have a kind of offhand aversion to him, but every time I see him in a film, you can't help but be wowed by his performance. And I mean, they've done the subtle makeup and things to make him kind of look like Lincoln. I believe he's wearing special boots that make him seem taller and things. And the second he puts on the stovepipe hat, you're just like, great. I, I get this. I get why this works. Why this was a hit. Why everyone loves it. 
cool, I'm in. And as I said, Ford initially kind of doing his withdrawn, kind of not flamboyant or garish cinematography or kind of overt style like that he normally portrays in a lot of his, you know, the Western or action films. And instead, just letting the script and letting Lincoln the man be the centerpiece and be the gloss of the film, I think, is, is insanely admirable. And you watch it and you're just like watching that horizon line. You, you know it's a well-constructed film. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, all, all up in summation, I enjoyed it. It was not, I, as I said, I went in with the biggest hesitations possible. I was not sure <laughs> that I was going to even like it one iota. It was a solidly entertaining film to watch on a Tuesday morning, kind of just sitting down and, um, you know, lazily watching this on the couch. It's up on YouTube if you want to check it out. It, it's fun. It is nowhere near as good as some of the other John Ford or Henry Fonda films that I've seen, but at the same time, it was nowhere near as dull or boring as I thought it could possibly be. Uh, so, would recommend... Um, and on that note, I will uh, dive in a little bit of trivia. Uh, the film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and was listed as one of the top ten films of the year by the National Board of Review, who awarded Fonda with Best Actor. Uh, it was also inducted into the National Film Registry in 2003. Uh, Henry Fonda originally turned down the role of Lincoln, saying that he didn't think he could play such a great man. Uh, he changed his mind after John Ford asked him to do a screen test in full makeup. After viewing himself as Lincoln in test footage, Fonda liked what he saw and accepted the part. Uh, he later told an interviewer, I felt as if I was portraying Christ himself on film. So, I guess that's also where a bit of the kind of arrogance and smugness comes from, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, John Ford and producer Daryl Zanuck uh, fought an extended battle over control of the film. Uh, Ford even had unused takes of the film destroyed so that the studio could not insert them into the movie. Uh, one such scene that Ford insisted on cutting was a scene where Lincoln met his future assassin, a very young John Wilkes Booth. I am so fucking glad that that wasn't in the film. And it sounds like one of those typical things of the producer's battling with the director to make it a dull Wikipedia-esque biopic or like a, a, a kind of fairy tale of happenstance and I'm so glad it wasn't that. If it had more of those scenes that it seems like Zanuck wanted to put in, I would be it would be what I initially thought it was and I'm so glad it wasn't. Uh, Henry Fonda wore specifically made boots that made him be taller, as I'd said. Uh, this was the first collaboration between Ford and Fonda, and the pair would later to go, go on to make The Grapes of Wrath, My Darling Clementine, Drums, uh, Drums Along the Mohawk, and Mr. Roberts. Um, yeah, a good little partnership between them. And I loved this. There were working titles of the f for the film. Uh, they were The Young Lincoln, A Younger Lincoln... The Life of Young Abraham Lincoln, and Lawyer of the West. <laughs> um, which I guess at this point I, I should dive into my tagline. I mean, I've got just, I mean, there's a stock standardy one, which I kept repeating throughout the episode, which I guess is very simple. The man, the myth, the legend, young Mr. Lincoln. Or if we wanted to go super dumb and jokey, uh, before young Sheldon, there was young Lincoln. And on that note, we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself. It's still in print from Criterion as a one-disc uh, Blu-ray or a two-disc DVD. 
and it comes with a new audio commentary featuring film scholar Joseph McBride, uh, Omnibus John Ford Part 1, filmmaker Lindsay Anderson's profile of the life and work of director John Ford before World War II, talk show appearance by actor Henry Fonda from 1975, audio interviews from the 70s with Ford and Fonda, conducted by the director's grandson Dan Ford, Academy Award radio uh, Academy Award radio dramatization of the film, as well as the usual booklet and essay that Criterion usually do. Uh, yeah, so on that note, we'll be wrapping up this week's episode looking at John Ford's 1939 film, Young Mr. Lincoln. And we will be back in a fortnight's time with some more Bergman, baby. We are going to be diving into The Virgin Spring, uh, a film I have seen before and I am looking forward to re uh, revisiting, especially uh, with a young Max von Sydow. Having uh, just watched The Exorcist again recently, I'm very, very keen for that. And uh, speaking of The Exorcist, in a couple of days' time, uh, spoiler alert for our uh, listeners over on Patreon, uh, we got Claire to watch The Exorcist, a film that she vowed uh, when we first started dating all those years ago that she would never watch. Uh, Lee and I convinced her to go see it at the cinema, and we sat and recorded a bonus Patreon episode, which will be dropping on the first of the month. So if you're interested in that, head over there, check it out. Uh, all, all that standard stuff, you know, the Instagram, the Patreon, it's all in the episode notes. Um, it, and to the people that do subscribe to Patreon, thank you very much. It helps cover the server costs and keep this show going, and we dearly appreciate it. Um, but on that note, uh, a, I'll wrap myself up, I'll, I'll finish up, I'll stop my rambling at this point, and I'll be back, joined by Lee again, uh, in a fortnight's time for The Virgin Spring. But for this week's episode, I'm Chris, and I'll see you next time. It's boring as shit.